I've been debating this morning whether I should do what I'm going to do, and I've decided I'm going to do it. Uh, I, uh, several of you have asked me some questions about uh, Bill Edelin's article last Saturday, and uh, the questions have to do with what sort of response should we make to our non-Christian friends. And it occurred to me that what we can do is make what appears to be an awkward situation a very positive one if we go about it in the right way. It really gives us an opportunity to share the gospel. Uh, I, I can't write letters to the editor because of my position as a columnist, but you can. But I'm not even sure that's the best use to make of, uh, of the opportunities that, that Dr. Edlin is giving us. I think this can be a springboard into a conversation with people about the Lord. I'd suggest clipping the thing out, giving it to people, and then asking them what they think. Um, there are three problems that I saw with his article last week. Number one, he sweeps under the rug all of the hard thinking that uh, moral theologians, both Catholic and Christian, have done over the years about the Ten Commandments. He just ignores all of that, skirts around it, and says that the Ten Commandments are nothing more than, uh, what does he call them, cultic, cultic taboos, and uh, sets aside all of the hard thinking about the internal contradictions and seeming problems and things of that sort within the law and how it's to be applied today. The second problem that I see is that he assigns meanings to Hebrew words that no Hebrew scholar in the world would accept, period. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I went through every Hebrew lexicon I have, and I could not find one example of, uh, of the term covet, hamad, in Hebrew, meaning uh, witchcraft. It simply doesn't mean that. In, any of, in the Hebrew form itself or any of related forms in other Near Eastern languages, I don't know where he gets these ideas. But the third and most important issue, I think, was uh, the fact that he undermines our entire system of justice. I don't know if you realize that, but he did. Our, our, our system of justice, our uh, legal system here in the United States, in fact, all of Western European jurisprudence comes from Hebrew law through Samuel Rutherford and John Locke to the founders of our, of our nation. That's where it came from. And what he did with one article is sweep all of that away. We have no basis for morality in the United States if Bill Edelin is right. And that's where I think we can make a positive statement uh, with reference to his, his article. If, uh, if he's right that the, uh, that the Hebrew law is nothing but witchcraft, superstition, uh, those sorts of things, then we have no basis for right and wrong in our country. The issue is not even the American way of life. It's... Uh, it's the issue is one of truth and morality. Do we have any basis for right and wrong, or is right and wrong simply what 51% of the people in the United States today think is right? That's really the issue. May I recommend a book? Would you get hold of Schaefer's Christian Manifesto? You can get it uh, in the bookstores. It is an excellent book. It will take you one night to read it, and you will probably be different as a result. Uh, it will, I, help you, I think, help you to, to think through the issues that Edlin raises in this column. All right, enough said. Let's, let's turn to Acts 2. It's always God's way to uh, take the, the worst things that happen to us and make, positive, uh, make opportunities for positive proclamation out of them. Let's uh, view everything in that light. Uh, as I talk to non-Christians and outsiders, I discover that most of them are very uneasy about the church. 
as uh, Paul Simon puts it, the church service makes them nervous. They, uh, they cannot really see any good reason why a church should exist. It doesn't have any positive, socially redeeming uh, aspects to it. It takes up space on the street corner. It takes up no space on the tax rolls. Uh, that's why I think some of the traditional privileges that we've been accorded as Christians, our tax-free status, uh, free police service, free fire protection, those sorts of things are being challenged now because people in the world can no longer see that the church has any real purpose in society. It just takes up space. It's an enormous waste of time and human resources. And this is widespread. I'm not talking about uh, a lunatic fringe. This is widespread. In, uh, in secular society. Now, I don't think this is the result of some sort of conspiracy. I think it's our fault. Jesus told us it would be that way. He said, you are salt. Your function is to preserve society and to arrest the spread of corruption. And if you cease to be salty, then you'll be good for nothing but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot. And that's exactly what's happening. We've ceased to be salt in society, and so people don't take us seriously anymore. We're being trodden underfoot. And we need to make some changes. And I say this to myself as well as all of us. We've got to function as, as our Lord, who is the head of this, this operation, intends us to function. Now let's turn to Acts 2, the uh, concluding paragraph. What Luke does here is give us a vignette, a little picture of what the church was. The verb tenses throughout indicate uh, something that used to be. Luke is looking back upon the experience of these early uh, Christians, this primitive church, and describing how one gets into this uh, body of believers, how this body functions, and what the results are in the society of that, of that time. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 41. Those who accepted his message, that is Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and, and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need, to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and literally they were nourished with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As you know, all of this occurred on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God indwelt the bodies of the 120 who were in the upper room. They spilled out of the upper room into the streets of Jerusalem and began to speak in the languages of the Roman Empire. What better way to illustrate God's intent to, uh, to gather in the entire world? And as a result of the commotion and the attention that, uh, that, was, that was aroused, a great crowd uh, gathered, and Peter began to preach, and we have a sermon preserved for us in chapter 2. And as a result of his powerful proclamation of the truth, 3,000 were gathered in. These were the charter members of this early church. Now Luke tells us a number of things about this church. The first is the mode of entry, the way one gets into the church. Luke tells us that uh, those who accepted Peter's message 
were baptized and added to the church that day. And there were 3,000 of them that believed what the apostle preached. And that's how you get into the church. If you want to know how to become a member of, of our Lord's church, it's believe what the apostles preached. That's the only way. That's the only basis for membership. It's been said a hundred times or more that it has nothing whatever to do with your own human activity, your works, your involvement in, in church business, performing uh, various church uh, duties, serving on committees, circles, various other activities, nothing to do with any of those things. It's a matter of believing what the apostles have preached, accepting their word about Jesus Christ. Uh, the question uh, frequently uh, is raised here, why don't you all make more of church membership? Well, it's not that we're against church membership. You can join this church if you'd like. But we tend to minimize it because we want people to understand that if you have put your faith in Christ as Lord, in Messiah, as Peter put it, then you're a member of this church. I had a lady who called me this past week who had a, what I thought was a, a fine suggestion, something that needed to be done, and she wanted to do it. And uh, we talked about it for a while, and I encouraged her, and she said, but I'm not a member of this church. Well, I said, look, uh, you're a member of the body of Christ, aren't you? And she said, yes. And I said, well, uh, so am I, so we are members of one another, right? So we're members of this church. Now, church membership can be important because it signifies a commitment to one body of believers, and I think we need to be loyal to one body, not hop from one place to the next. But once you find a body of believers that, uh, that's to your, to your uh, liking and a place where you can serve, and you, and you walk into that group, you're, you're a member. You can go to any part of the world. It doesn't matter what group. If Christ is Lord to that group, then you're a member. You're accepted. Now, the, the converse side of that whole issue is that we must not reject someone whom our Lord has accepted. I think all of us would agree with the first statement that Christ accepts anyone as a member of his body if they simply put their trust in him. But the other side of the issue is that we must not reject someone whom Christ has added to the church. Red, yellow, black, white, they're all precious in his sight. Are they precious in our sight? If someone walks in that door and Christ is Lord to them, but they're not like us, they don't dress like us. They don't smell like us. They're not of our particular social or cultural level. We have to accept them because Christ does. We can't reject anyone, even if they're Democrats. <laughs> or Californians. <laughs> There's no such thing as a white middle-class church. There's no such thing as a black church. There's no such thing as a right-wing political church or a left-wing political church. Those are all contradictions in terms. We have to accept each other because Christ does. I cannot reject a brother whom Christ has accepted. I can't think of a more diverse group than, than this group of early apostles. Uh, there was Simon, who's described as a zealot, Simon Zealotus, he's called. The zealots were staunchly pro-Israel, anti-Roman. They hated the Romans. And many of them belonged to a group called the Sicarii, who were assassins. They, uh, 
They murdered Romans. That's how intense their feeling was. In that same group was Matthew, who was a publican, who served the Romans. He would be pro-Roman in his political orientation. And I'm sure these two men had some heated debates. But they accepted each other. Because they saw that there is a greater issue than, than who rules the world, even. It's who rules the hearts of men. You see, that's the great issue that we have to keep in mind. And our tendency is to get off target. I mean, what matters is my kind, my culture, my group. And we can't do that. We may disagree with one another politically or culturally, but we still have to accept one another. It is wrong to reject anyone whom Christ has accepted on the basis of race, color, culture, ethnic background, social level, whatever. We have to embrace those whom Christ has embraced. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about um, this passage is the way Luke describes the functions of this body. And I use that term because I think that's the better term than activities. It's more appropriate because this was a body, and a body doesn't just act, it functions. Now, I want to make a an important distinction. A church is not a church because of what it does. A church does what it does because it's a church. You see the difference? A church is not a church because of what people do. A church does what it does because it's a church. Now, some people think if you simply do things that the church is supposed to do, you have a church. Well, you get a building, and then you hire a preacher, or you could hire the preacher first and then get a building. And then you get the congregation together and you sing songs and uh, you set up a Sunday school, and then you get buses, and you, you gather in children from the neighborhood, and then you have to have a lot of committees. Everybody knows that a church can't run without committees. The more, the better. If some is good, more is better, and too many are that's just right. And everybody gets busy, and then you've got a church. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's not what a church is. Luke tells us in this passage what the church does if we leave it alone. The problem is that when you get a group of Christians together, the clergy or somebody else gets in the act and they start organizing people. And you start doing things because everybody expects that, you know, that's what the church is supposed to do. But if you just leave Christians alone, they will automatically do what they're supposed to do. They will start functioning as a body because it's a living organism. It's not an organization. You don't have to tell a child how to start functioning. All the organs just start functioning when they're born. They start experimenting around and using the, the uh, uh, arms and hands and feet, members that God has given to them, and pretty soon they learn how to, how to function properly. It's a natural sort of thing because it's the natural outgrowth of life. Now, Luke says if you just leave a group of Christians alone and let the Spirit of God work and let the Lord head up his church, these are the things that will happen, three things. They will become a teachable, obedient people. That's the first thing you will note. That's the outstanding mark of a living body. They are teachable and obedient to apostolic teaching. These people, Luke says, gave themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Secondly, they will become a, a caring, loving people. They will not only love each other, but they will do something to to manifest their love. Most of our love is just love talk. Most of us are really afraid to lay our, our lives and our self-image and our public image and our budgets on the line. But these are people that 
that we're willing to, to give to one another in very tangible and, and practical ways. That's always the second mark, a group of people who really love each other. It's not just love talk. They really care, and they demonstrate it practically. And the third um, mark or function of a living church is that they will become a dependent people, prayerful. Luke says they gave themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the uh, and to fellowship and the breaking of bread. That's one idea. You'll notice that the and does not occur between those two words. To fellowship, i.e., the breaking of bread, and we'll explain that term in a moment. And third, to prayer. They become dependent upon Christ as the living head of, of that church. And let's look at these marks or functions in some detail. First, Peter tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The uh, early church, according to Ephesians, uh, four was founded upon the preaching of the apostles and the prophets. Paul says that the church first, in 1 Corinthians 12, the church first is based upon the apostles. These were the men that our Lord appointed and gave special authority to, uh, which authority was not passed on to succeeding generations. As you read through the uh, the, next, the writings of the next generation, those that are called the sub-apostolic fathers, the, uh, the teachers and pastors and leaders and elders in the church immediately following the, the apostles right after their death, you discover that they don't go around commanding people to do things. One Justin Martyr writes to the church in Rome, and he, he says, I do not command you as the apostles. I implore you as a brother. These men knew they didn't have the authority of the apostles, but the, the apostles had the same authority that our Lord Jesus had. Uh, it was passed on to them. Paul describes himself to the church in, or his writings in, to the church in, in Thessalonica. He says, when you received them, you received them not as the word of men, but as they really are, the word of God. They're very self-conscious about, uh, about their authority. And wherever you find a group of people that are committed to Christ as Lord, you'll discover that they, that they have that attitude toward the apostles and their writings, the New Testament, which, is, which today represents the teaching of the apostles. It's the only word that we have from the apostles. When, when Christ becomes Lord, then the word of the apostles becomes his word to them. And they start listening and obeying. They don't argue. They don't quibble. They don't rebel. They don't resist it. Oh, you know, we all struggle to obey. And we all resist at some point from time to time, but we can't keep on resisting. That's the point. Wherever you find people who, who, who love and serve Jesus Christ as Lord, they will want to obey what the apostles have written in the New Testament. Now, those of us who are in positions of leadership in the church, elders, and others, as I say, do not have that authority. Our job is to simply say again what the apostles have said. That's why I think exposition of Scripture is such a, a powerful uh, means of changing hearts, because we're simply saying again what the apostles have said. I don't have any authority to command. I can't control your life or demand that you behave in certain ways. All I can do is exhort you as a brother and encourage you to listen to the apostles and what they have to say. And those of you who are in, in leadership positions within the body who are teachers have that same authority to expound the teachings, the writings, the preaching of the apostles. 
and to call people to submit to it. Now that's the first mark of a living church. They are a teachable, obedient people. The second mark is that they're a loving, caring people. He says they devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and uh, to prayer. By fellowship, he meant that they were together. There was a great measure of togetherness, and it was not simply that they, that they met together, but they, they were together in mind. They were at one mind. Oh, they had areas of disagreement. But they were forever setting aside their own self-interest in order to serve the needs of the body. They were forgiving. They were loving. They were tender toward one another. They were sympathetic and understanding. Uh, one of the best descriptions, I think, given to us in Scripture of that process is in Ephesians, the uh, fourth chapter. Would you turn with me? Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, he says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. So as members of the body of Christ, we need to be truthful about all things. I, I think probably one of the areas where we tend to lie to one another is in the area of our personal needs. You know, we're all taught to uh, stand on our own feet, tough it out to be men or women, and uh, to not need anyone. That's uh, the way you do it up here in, in Idaho. But uh, and just this past week, I called a friend of mine that I know is having some physical problems, and I said, how you doing? He said, just great. And I said, no, you aren't. He said, oh, you're right, I'm not. I feel terrible. <clears throat> but uh, I thought myself, how many times have I answered the same way when somebody said, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, but I'm really not. I'm dying inside. Peter says, be truthful. Be open. Be honest with one another. Because the church is one place where we can gather and, and hurt and, and not need to protect ourselves. None of us likes to cry out there in the world, but it's all right to come here and cry. I can remember when my kids used to get hurt playing out in the front yard or somewhere in the neighborhood, and, and uh, they would run all the way home and dash through the front door and then break down and start to cry. They didn't want to cry out there. They didn't want anyone to see that, that they're hurting, but but they could come into the house and cry because they knew they were loved and accepted. It just didn't matter. And, and the same is true of us. When we hurt, we need to let people know that we, that we hurt. How in the world can we bear one another's burdens if we don't share our burdens with one another? Paul says, tell each other the truth. Don't be deceitful because we're all members of one body. One member of the body doesn't lie to another. In your anger, do not sin. Uh, he's quoting from Psalm 4, as you know. And uh, he admits the possibility of anger. Everyone gets angry every once in a while at, at something somebody else does. But he says, eh, you know, you're going to get angry, but don't sin. How do you stop sinning? Well, he tells us, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Anger becomes resentment when we permit it to, to remain. When we foster it, we encourage it. We pander to our feelings. It becomes resentment and bitterness and hostility toward one another. And that's what splits churches. Rarely do churches ever split over doctrinal matters. I can name one or two in my, that I know of in my past. Rarely. It's almost always 
because someone gets out of phase with someone else and they get resentful and they start talking and the gossip spreads and a reputation is ruined and people line up on both sides and the church splits. And that's wrong. I remember reading a couple of years ago of it. This actually happened. A church somewhere back east uh, that was gathered on Sunday morning and uh, they were having a congregational meeting and uh, discussion turned into an argument and finally into a fist fight. And uh, they went out into the park to finish the fight out there and the police came and broke it up. And so they went back into the church and the fist fight broke out again inside the church this time. So the police came in and, and took everybody out of the building and padlocked the door. And everybody in the church was incensed because uh, that was a violation of their right to worship. <laughs> that actually happened. That's the sort of thing that must not be named among us. We're going to disagree. We are going to disagree. We're all different. But we must not let our disagreements destroy our fellowship. We need to be truthful with one another. We need to be honest. We need to deal with our anger. We need to put it away when we get frustrated and resentful. Judge it. Put it away. There is a way, as you know, to, to handle our problems. We can go straight to the person who's offended us or who has sinned against us, and we can deal with our brother. But it is wrong. It is wrong to bear a grudge, to let resentment uh, go on unjudged, and to gossip about one another. And then Paul goes on. He says, don't give the devil a foothold. That's how he gains a toehold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The uh, Greek term means rotten, actually. Don't say anything rotten about somebody else. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. There's that positive, constructive attitude toward another. Don't say anything that would tear a brother down. Don't say anything that would destroy a brother's reputation. Uh, in someone else's mind, let's build up rather than, than tear down. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What is it that grieves the Spirit of God? To talk to some Christians, it's uh, the presence of someone in uh, the congregation who smokes. Someone comes into the congregation, they sit down, and you can smell cigarette smoke. And, and the attitude is, that, that's grievous. Now, I'm not advocating smoking cigarettes. I think it's kind of a costly, uh, unhealthy habit. But those, that's not what grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in the verses that follow, get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. It's malice and resentment and bitterness and gossip. That's what grieves the Spirit of God because that's what destroys the togetherness of the body. And as Luke describes this uh, group of people, they, they loved each other. They really cared for each other. They were forgiving and tender as Christ was toward them. I get the impression from reading Luke's description that they spent a lot of time eating together. And I like that because I love to eat. Uh, I, you know, church was fun back in those days. It was really fun. You got together, and uh, they worshiped, and they listened to the apostles teach, and uh, they prayed together and shared their hurts and their needs together, and then they all went off someplace and ate together. It was fun. Somehow we have, have 
perpetuated the idea that church is a drag. If it isn't, if it isn't uncomfortable, then it can't possibly be uh, sanctified. Can't be good. Got to be unhappy and miserable. We contribute through those hard chairs to, to your suffering, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't need to be that way. It ought to be fun. And incidentally, it seems to me that Luke is saying that the church uh, gathered in two sorts of groups. There were large groups, corporate gatherings, where they gather, as, as we are this morning, uh, to be instructed from the apostles' teaching. And then secondly, they met from house to house in small groups, and they expressed their love in practical ways in those groups, ate together, cared for each other, ministered to hurts, uh, built people up, uh, developed friendships, just loved each other. Now, that expression of love was very practical. It says in verse 46, all, 44, excuse me, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, this was not, uh, Luke is not here advocating some new social or economic order. That's not, that's not the point. He's simply saying that they met their, their needs uh, in practical ways. As James says, if, a, if your brother shows up on your front doorstep and he has need of clothing, and housing, food, you don't tell him I give at the office. You uh, invite him in. You don't, you don't even give him a blessing. <laughs> you do something for him. You feed him and, and you clothe him. You take care of his needs, and that's what, this, that's what the early church did. Many of these Christians were suffering, and uh, they, just, uh, they just gave. Now, your response may be, well, I don't have any property to sell. I don't have any money. But you do have other assets. You've got, uh, you've got skills that you've acquired, things you can do with your hands. There are people in our congregation that need uh, work done on their houses. They can't do it. Single parents whose cars break down, some of you are mechanics, give them a hand. Uh, when people uh, uh, are sick, there's an opportunity to mow their lawn for them and prepare foods, food for them and take the kids off of their hands and, and to do things in a practical way to express our, our love and appreciation for one another. Now, the third mark of this body of believers is that they were a dependent people. They gave themselves to prayer. Now, I don't think that Luke has in mind here a series of prayer meetings. There's certainly nothing wrong with prayer meetings, and uh, certainly we should, we should have them. But it's possible to have prayer meetings and still miss the, the significance of, of, this, of this function. It's not merely a meeting in which you pray. It's an attitude of dependence upon God. The Lord himself is the head of this church, not the elders not the paid staff. The Lord is the head, and we need to trust him and rely upon him for everything. That means that whenever we gather, in any sort of circumstance, we need to be praying, uh, meeting together one-on-one, -on -one as, as we've encouraged, uh, to uh, build each other up, spend some time in prayer. Uh, wherever we gather, we ought to be expressing our dependence upon God. I really think that some churches, even churches that have prayer meetings, still are run as though God is not in, he's no, nowhere in the, in the operation. Uh, everything depends upon uh, Madison Avenue promotion techniques and, and campaigns and crusades and drives and, and the charisma of the leaders and the size and uh, uh, beauty of the buildings and whatnot. And I'm not, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying let's don't us fall into that sort of thing. Uh, we need to be dependent upon the Lord 
who is going to present his church as a chaste, unwrinkled bride? He said he would do that. It's not my job. Boy, I'm glad I didn't. I, I remember how relieved I was when, I, when it first dawned on me what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5. The illustration, as you know, is uh, that of... Uh, well, he's talking about husbands loving their wives, and he says, as Christ loves his church, who gave himself for her, that he might present her to himself as a chaste and beautiful bride without spot and wrinkle. And I thought, it's, it all depends on him. Not me, but on him. What a load that takes off your shoulders. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, when he's describing the characteristics of a good minister, he says there's two things that a servant ought to keep in mind. Number one, he is an under-roar of Christ. That's the term that he uses. The under-roars were the fellows in the Greek galleys who rode the ship and who kept their eyes on the coxswain, who rode to his his uh, beat. And I think what Paul is saying is that the pace with which a church develops and the direction which it goes is solely Christ's prerogative. We ought to keep our eye on him. He'll let us know how fast we ought to grow or, or what we ought to do in terms of dividing or whatever uh, plan he has for us in the future. That's up to him. We just need to trust him. He'll let us know in the proper time. And then secondly, he says that the, sec the second thing that a minister ought to be is a steward of the mysteries of God. A steward was a butler in a Roman household. And by mysteries, he means the, the good things of God. The butler would go into the basement, he'd bring out all the good food and put it out on the table for the Roman uh, household. And he says that's what we need to do is to keep taking the secrets, the mysteries, the good things of God, the secrets about life and presenting them to people. And furthermore, Paul says it's required of a steward to be faithful. That's all. He doesn't even have to be good at what he does. He just has to be faithful. And if we do that, if we keep our eye on the Lord and we faithfully dispense the mysteries of God, then we can let God take the consequences. Numbers are unimportant. He'll let us know the way we ought to go. The plea I would make is that let's, let's just keep on being a dependent, prayerful people. Now, the results uh, are spelled out for us here in, in verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They gathered in Solomon's porch, one of the rooms there where they held their meetings, the 3,000 plus. And they broke bread in their homes, so they met, uh, they met in, in large uh, plenary uh, groups, corporate uh, sessions of the church. And they broke bread by households, that is, they fellowshiped together and ate together in their homes. And uh, literally it says they were nourished. The, the verse could read this way. Continuing in Solomon's porch, breaking bread in their homes, they were nourished. In other words, the way the church was nourished and, and built up was by these gatherings, both the large gatherings and the small group gathering, and the church group. That was the first result. The body became healthy. They had food to live on, and so they grew. And the second result is that the Lord added daily to their number. He, he says daily. It wasn't, uh, you're not talking about uh, periodic forays out into the world to do evangelism. It was a day-by-day -day experience. People were being added to the church. And it just struck me again as I read through this passage. This is the key to evangelism. 
Do we want to reach the non-Christian world? The best way is to let them see the church in action. Presumably, it's the right sort of action. There are some churches I just assumed they didn't see. But, uh, but if we're acting the right way, people will be drawn to the Lord. People like that sort of groupiness. People are hungry for it. They're desperate for it. That's why they get into all these ersatz groups like the Red Men of the World and all this other stuff. They, they want a group where people care about them. And what better group than a group where people really do care about you because they have the love of love of Christ. You know, one of the best instruments we have for evangelism is our growth groups. If those become simply self-centered, if they're there just to nourish us, they'll die. We have to reproduce. But if we see them as, as centers for evangelism in the community and we can invite non-Christians in to see Christians in action, what a powerful witness that will be. Make some homemade ice cream and invite them in to watch you eat ice cream and love each other. A lot of people are anti-church, but nobody is anti-ice cream. <laughs> just invite them over. Let them see the church uh, as, it, as it functions. That's the most powerful thing we have going, going for us. Someone described the church as God's colony in man's world. I really like that description. We live out in secular society as little outposts. And we need to take that assignment seriously. Uh, it, it, it probably means that life will not be as comfortable for us as it has been in the past. But I'm sure the disciples were far more comfortable when they were fishing than uh, when they followed the Lord. It's going to cost. It'll cost in terms of time and energy and, and money and privacy and some of our basic uh, human rights that we tend to hold so dear. It'll cost us. But it'll pay off. People will respond. They'll come to know the Savior. And that's really what we're here uh, to do, to make visible the invisible Christ wherever we go and draw people into relationship with him. Now, it's, it's uh, fitting, I think, this morning that we should celebrate the Lord's table. In a way, I, I wish we didn't have to do it with little cups and little pieces of bread because the early church didn't celebrate the Lord's table that way. They, they had a feast, a love feast. And they simply took the elements, the common elements that were on the table, and they, they shared them together. I wish we could do that. It's not too practical anymore. But uh, we can still do it from house to house and uh, want to encourage that sort of thing. But in, in this symbolic way this morning, we're simply expressing our, our oneness, our commonality, the uniqueness of our relationship to Christ and to one another. We're one body. We want to ask the men to come now. And we'll uh, distribute the elements, take them together as a symbolic way of expressing our fellowship.